0: Well, good morning. How about we open our Bibles to the book of John 3:16? Uh if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that throughout the season we've been going through uh just a series of themes and ideas around that particular passage, John 3:16. Um if you guys need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and uh Ushers will get you a Bible. Uh the themes having to do with uh the season of Advent, uh the time that we celebrate when God comes into this world and it does what Jesus does ultimately for that purpose and the three or the four main themes that we've been looking at each week have been hope love peace today we're going to be looking at joy uh again want to uh also just before we even jump in just encourage you like Next Saturday being the Christmas Eve service that we have. Again, uh, we're going to be taking Sunday off as I was already mentioned. Um, there's a variety of reasons for that, but one of which obviously we really just believe in the importance of you guys being able to hang out with your family and as well as our staff to be able to do that as well. Um, so we're going to put our eggs and our, just our, our time into the Saturday evening time together. Really looking forward to that. Uh, if you have family members or friends or neighbors or people that you know or coworkers that maybe either don't know Jesus or they're far from God or they maybe at, at some point walked away from, you know, the church or Jesus or whatever. They're at some state of, you know, not necessarily connected to the work that God wants to do. Um, These are really unique opportunities to invite people. People will come if they're invited. It's just one of those times out of the year, culturally. I mean, even though uh, America, for the most part, has kind of become more of like a post-Christian Culture and society, there are still people that have this sense of like, oh man, but I kind of want to go to church on Christmas or Easter or something like that. And so they will come if they are given an invitation. So think about that, pray about that. In fact, before we even jump in, I would actually even just love to pray right now for you. So right now, it's just a little practice. Think about somebody in your life right now, neighbor, family member, son, daughter, mom, you know, grandpa, grandma, whatever. Think of somebody. Uh, that maybe you can ask. And I want to just pray right now, and then we'll jump into the teaching. So, let's do it. Uh, Jesus, right now we come and we bring before you these people. You love them. You care for them. You desire them to know you. You desire them to know peace and hope and love and joy, uh, which means that you desire them to know you. You're the source of it all. We ask you, Father, even right now, that you would just move and stir in the hearts of people, that uh, you have placed us directly, strategically in their lives. So God, give us uh, boldness and courage, opportunity to invite them to come, to just be a part of maybe what you want to do, and uh, just uh, use it as an opportunity to awaken people's hearts and souls and uh, minds uh, to life in you. And uh, we just commit it in your hands, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, each week we've been looking at a particular theme. Today we're going to be looking at the theme of joy. Uh, this, again, all of this is connected to John 3.16. Before we even jump in, I would just want to read that passage. And then we're going to be doing what we've been typically doing each week, is listening to a Bible Project video uh, corresponding to this specific theme. Today we'll be looking at joy. But I want to read this particular passage first. So just, again, listen to it. Think about it. Again, it's one of those passages, uh, if you're overly familiar with it, it could just be like, you know, white noise in your head when you hear it. Um, My invitation for you is to maybe to unplug from that past uh, white noise and just listen to it afresh. Here we go. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And this is the word of the Lord. And so we're going to right now watch this little video on joy, and then we'll get to work looking at some teaching from this particular passage.
1: Being in a good mood is really great, and most languages have lots of words to describe the experience, like happy, cheerful, joyful, and so on. The same goes for the languages of the Bible. In ancient biblical Hebrew, there's a variety of words, like simcha, sason, or gil. In the Greek New Testament, there's kara, euphorsune, or agaliasis. Each word has its own unique nuance, but they all basically refer to the feeling of joy and happiness. Now, what makes these biblical joy words interesting is noticing the kinds of things that bring happiness and also seeing how joy is a key theme that runs through the whole story of the Bible. Let's start with sources of joy. On page one of the Bible, God says that this world is very good. And so naturally, people find joy in beautiful and good things of life, like growing flocks or an abundant harvest on the hills. The poet of Psalm 104 says a good bottle of wine is God's gift to bring joy to people's hearts. People find joy at a wedding or in their children. There's even a Hebrew proverb that compares the joy that perfume brings to your nose with the joy a good friend brings to your heart. However, human history isn't just a joy fest. The biblical story shows how we live in a world that's been corrupted by our own selfishness. It's marked by death and loss. And this is where biblical faith offers a unique perspective on joy. It's an attitude God's people adopt, not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. So when Israelites were suffering from slavery in Egypt, God raised up Moses to lead them into freedom, and the first thing the Israelites did was sing for joy. Even though they were in the middle of a desert, they were vulnerable, the promised land was still far away, they rejoiced anyway. Later biblical poets looked back on this story, and they remembered how the Lord caused his people to leave with joy, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. This joy in the wilderness, this was a defining moment, a way of saying that the joy of God's people is not determined by their struggles, but by their future destiny. This theme appears later in Israel's story, when Israel suffered under the oppression of foreign empires. The prophet Isaiah looked for a day when God would raise up a new deliverer like Moses. That's when those redeemed by the Lord will return to Zion with glad shouts, with eternal joy crowning their heads. Happiness and joy will overtake them. And while the Israelites waited, they chose joy to anticipate their future redemption. This is why it's significant that when Jesus of Nazareth was born, it was announced as good news that brings great joy we're told that jesus himself rejoiced and gave thanks to god his father when he began to announce the kingdom of god he even taught his followers the same joy in the wilderness saying when people reject you or persecute you for following me rejoice be very glad because your reward is great in heaven after his death and resurrection jesus commissioned his followers to go out and announce the good news that he was the risen king of the world And as they did so, the early Christian communities were known for being full of joy, even when they were persecuted. Like when the Apostle Paul was sitting in a dirty Roman prison, he could say that he's chosen joy, even if he gets executed. He called this the joy of faith or joy in the Lord. He believed it was the gift of God's spirit, a sign that Jesus' presence is with you, inspiring hope in the midst of hardship. And when you believe that Jesus' love has overcome death itself, joy becomes reasonable in the darkest of circumstances. Now, this doesn't mean that you ignore or suppress your sorrow. That's not healthy or necessary. Paul often expressed his grief about missing loved ones or losing friends or his own freedom. He called it being full of sorrow and yet rejoicing. As he acknowledged his pain, he also made a choice to trust Jesus that his loss wouldn't be the final word. This is very different from the trite advice to turn that frown upside down. Christian joy is a profound decision of faith and hope in the power of Jesus' own life and love. And that's what biblical joy is all about.
0: I want to start with a quick little uh, statement, kind of a sociological, societal broad statement that uh, I was thinking about and it just goes something like this the natural state of humanity in our world is one of suffering sorrow and death sounds really dark but punctuated by moments of pleasurable experiences and happiness so I want to read that again just listen to it carefully the natural state you know just the default state the natural default state of humanity every human being across the board I don't care what society or culture you live in or what color of your skin you have the natural Default state or status of humanity is, in our world, is one of suffering. Everyone has suffering. Sorrow. Everyone has sorrow. Death. Everyone dies. Merry Christmas. <laughs> punctuated, punctuated by moments of pleasurable experiences and happiness. I think that's accurate. Which actually is why it all brings me to uh, Paul Galgana. And you're like, wait, what? Paul Gauguin? You know, the painter, Paul Gauguin, he was a famous painter. I'm going to show you a couple uh, images of him um, that he had uh, made over his uh, lifetime, and he was probably one of the most famous of all artists during the time in which he lived. He lived uh, during a time of 1848 to uh, 1903, died uh, fairly young. He was a very influential painter within the Paris art scene. Uh, He was good friends with Vincent van Gogh. He was extremely influential on a number of fronts with a lot of uh, very well-known painters after him. Uh, He was – why he is notable to me because he was uh, heavily influenced by the philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau – and he had this idea, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, of what's called back to Eden concept. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau was a cultural critic of the world in which he lived in um, after the Renaissance and after kind of like this massive wave of, of overemphasis upon human beings being able to be creative, whether it be in the arts or sciences or politics or whatnot. Uh, he became sort of pessimistic in rea- reality that society at large is part of the problem. Society at large is part of the problem. So he kind of had this idea. He said this, I'm sure some of you might be familiar with this, but he says, man was born free and he is everywhere in chains. Man was born free and he is everywhere in chains. And his big idea behind that is that there are oppressive institutions all around that are basically enslaving human beings and keeping them held down, whether that be in society, whether that be the church or the government or even family or even the institution of marriage. In other words, if you can break these oppressive institutions, you will then find and discover actual freedom. Now, again, I realize for many of us, uh, we may not be familiar with who Rousseau is. He is definitely upstream of all sorts of ideas and ideologies that you and I actually live by. So you might not know this, but you and I live based upon a particular mindset or idea that has become very influential within our culture. So you're familiar for sure with this phrase. Follow your heart. Follow that upstream. That will come from Rousseau. And it was the big idea that follow your heart. Do what you feel is right. If there is an institution standing in the way, whether it be a spouse or a child or a job or a career or a religion or a mom or dad or, you know, cranky old grandma, break the institution, enter into the new world where you can then express yourself and you will fully come to life. That was his big idea. Uh, why he was so important in terms of shaping the mind of Gauguin was that as he was looking at society at large and uh, replicating his understanding of society at large by way of his paintings, uh, one of the things that he got frustrated with overall was uh, the French-European scene in which he was living in. He described it as artificial and conventional. So he ultimately sought to leave it, then to, quote, go back to the source of humanity in its pure, good uh, form of infancy. Infancy. Um, he was looking for what was commonly known as the noble savage. Maybe you're familiar with that phrase as well. And again, it takes all sorts of shapes and forms and a variety of different forms of literature. But the big idea was this, is that if you can find a human being that has been untouched By culture or society or religion or the various institutions that have like kind of been scattered abroad throughout the European scene, what we would call white Western, you know, Christian normatism, normativism, Uh, then you can find a person that truly is living their best life. They are good. There's nobility that will define the landscape. And so Gogon basically went out looking for this. So he actually left his wife and kids, because they were oppressive institutions that were part of the downfall of his life. So he leaves his wife and his kids, moves to Tahiti, and he's there spending many, many years just observing, watching. One of the things that he discovered when he moved there, in fact, I'm going to show you this next painting of his. This is uh, one of his most famous paintings that he actually had uh, uh, um, done during this particular time while he was in Tahiti searching for this noble savage. again, savage, which is Someone that's primitive, don't, don't think of savage in a negative way, savage meaning primitive, they're untouched, unscathed by society at large, and they're noble, meaning they live according to a certain set of rules and ideas and ideologies that, are, that have nobility, goodness. They bring joy, they bring longevity, they bring sustainable life and goodness within that. And so one of the things that he realized is that what he found when he went there was this, cruelty, sorrow, and death. And after this painting, after this painting, the most famous of all his paintings, he attempted suicide and he failed. But he was filled with despair. Why? Because he had this hope, this Rousseauian, Rousseauian dream, this envision, this vision that somehow life could be found in a pure, raw, sustainable, joy-filled form apart from society. Now we have versions of this in our culture today, by the way. Don't, 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 don't miss this. The, our versions today is if we can just distance ourselves from our history, America's wicked and evil, we've done horrible things, we've got to forever be enslaved to the past, so therefore we can never let it go because, but if we can break away from that, then we will find some degree of purity and wholeness and joy and peace. Uh, we have other versions of this where we would basically say something like this: that if you again throw off the shackles of whatever institution that's out there, just do what your heart is telling you to do. Follow your heart. Which, by the way, has this this framework, this narrative that has actually made up almost every single major movie you've ever watched. The hero in the story, who's the hero? The hero is the one that breaks off this institution and then finds. Freedom through following his heart, Luke Skywalker, right? Every, I mean, Pocahontas, every single uh, Disney movie, the hero is the one that breaks off institutional enslavement and then follows her heart and finds true life. And what Gauguin discovered is that this is actually not the case, that humanity, really, this idea that humanity is good by nature and able to create sustainable life and joy is really... This farce, it's false. And why I think this is important, because this is contrasted, I think, with the biblical worldview that takes into account that God created things in this world to flourish as it was to follow the design which he, the creator, intended. However... Because humanity, human beings, you and I, we have autonomy, meaning we get to make our choices. We get to wake up in the morning and choose what type of breakfast we want to eat. Are we going to make our bed or not make our bed? Are we going to choose to be productive or lazy today? Are we going to go online first thing? Are we going to just not go onto our cell phones the first thing? What are we going to do? How are we going to think about our sexuality? Will we follow the deepest desires and longings of my sexual pleasures and longings? Or will we say no to those things and exercise some degree of self-restraint self-constraint? Because that's what humans do. We have the ability to say no to certain things. If no- in other words, if it's just because it's there and I can, does it mean it's right? Uh, humanity would say, just follow your heart, do what's there. But the scripture would say there are things in this world that will actually bring death, destruction, and ruin to your soul. And it will compound by way of guilt and shame and brokenness. In other words, the very opposite of joy and life. Which is what Jesus Promises to come to bring, which is what the passage in John 3.16 is. So, which brings me to basic three things I really want to lay out with regard to this idea of John 3.16. Again, he mentions the idea of being eternal life. I'll just read the little phrase again: that whoever believes in him, Jesus, will not perish but have everlasting life. So Question naturally would be, why am I describing joy from this word or this phrase that has nothing to do with even the word joy? Because there's three things I want to bring to light. Number one is an assumption that eternal life is really the counterpart of joy. Joy comes or is derived from this sense of eternal life. And again, if you want way more information on this, just kind of find uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, book on this. He's got an incredible book written about joy, and he goes into way greater detail and Depth on this that I would highly recommend just following that and checking that out. But the second thing we'll take a look at is eternal life and joy as contrasted with sorrow and death. And lastly, we'll take a look at eternal life which is really just a gift as well as joy, a gift from God to be received. So I want to jump right in and take a look at eternal life as a counterpart to joy. I think this is important because it helps us understand kind of create a map of where do we find our deepest joy? Where does it come from? Again, as distinct, if you want as the video kind of describes, from happiness, which are just certain happenstances that happen in your life. I mean, again, have you ever noticed that throughout your life, there's going to be moments where your joy peaks and your depression like goes down in deep valleys. It's kind of like this constant roller coaster of like, I feel great today. I feel horrible today. I feel awesome today. I feel like I just want to stay in bed all day today. Um, But joy is something very distinct that God gives. So I want to point out a little bit about how the scripture kind of details this. Again, the video did a great job with that, but I just want to listen to some of these uh, verses that kind of clearly articulate this. Psalm uh, 16 verse 11 says this. Uh, you made known to me the path of life in your presence, and in your presence is fullness of joy. So in the psalmist, he links the idea of joy to God's presence and this path of life. So in other words, God's presence is what is the path of life, and as you are on this path of life with God in his presence, then joy is something that is fueling your soul. John 15 verse 11 says this, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full that Jesus actually cares about your joy, cares about your joy. He prays this. He invites his followers into this. He says very clearly, I've spoken my words to you so that you might attain or have joy. First uh, Peter verse 1, chapter 1, verse 8 says, uh, though you have not seen him, you love him and you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and full of Glory. And so Peter's writing this to a group of people that have never seen Jesus. They 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 only know of Jesus by way of secondhand knowledge. They heard someone talk about Jesus. They're like, I want that. I need that. Then they believed in that. And as a result of that, Peter's writing them. Hey, look, you guys have never seen Jesus. Uh, Peter could say, I saw Jesus. I hung out with Jesus. I was one of Jesus' closest friends. But you guys, unfortunately, you've never seen Jesus. You never heard him actual in the in the flesh. I did. But his whole point is that even though you've never seen him, you still love him. In reality, that's you and I today. None of us, I don't think, have ever seen Jesus. Um, and yet, those of us who would cling to Jesus say, we haven't seen him. Uh, we don't know what he looks like. But what we have is that we believe in him. And as a result of that, his whole point is that there is a joy that's available, that's inexpressible, and filled with weightiness or the word glory this is sense of weightiness its sense it's it's the opposite of something being shallow or lightweight or worthless this is the idea of something that has value worthiness uh so number 1 we see this idea of eternal life is really this counterpart of joy so if you want to put it this way joy joy is there because first and foremost we have eternal life jesus would say eternal life is this that you would know the father Jesus would say that eternal life is not just something you hold on to or hold on to you, it's found in a relationship. In other words, if you want to go all the way back to the opening sequence of the Bible, you see Adam and Eve created by God and God basically declared over them, you can live, all of this is yours. You live as you are in cooperative relationship with me. The moment you say no to me, you will enter into a state of defiance. You will walk away from the path." of life but this is the trick that you and i are consistently faced with believing we are actually constantly when we hear the idea or the culturally framed uh concept that says follow your heart what we're ultimately saying is i will follow my heart wherever that leads me even if it leads me away from what god clearly is saying do not do this is a path of darkness a path of death a path of alienation. And yet everything in our soul says, no, this is a path of life, a path of wholeness, a path of goodness, a path of uh, uh, everything that I've ever dreamed of and longed for, it will get me that. That was the exact same lie that Adam and Eve fell for in the garden when they ate the fruit. But moving on to the next thing, we begin to take a look at that eternal life and joy are contrasted with sorrow and death. So again, read the passage. It says this. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So we got to think a little bit about this idea of not perish. What does Jesus mean by that? And again, if you follow that particular word throughout the New Testament, the word perish can just mean Um, uh, any form of just like missing the mark of what it was intended for. It doesn't necessarily mean eternal damnation, though it can mean that, but the point of the matter is it's missing its intended purpose for which it was created. And then it drifts off into something that is that becomes rotten. That's the big idea that seems to be conveyed here. But what Jesus seems to be identifying, there's like three specific things that I kind of point out by way of bullets. Number one, what we see very clearly that Jesus is radically serious about your life in your joy radically serious about that but here's what's really important you have to hear this he's radically serious about it on his terms and that is offensive to you and i especially in this modern world where we think we've come to believe that everything is on our terms so when we hear jesus saying no i'll give you life life in abundance but it's on my terms you have to trust me we hear you're an oppressor you don't really love me you're out to destroy me. You're out to keep things from me. That's what we hear, and part of that is fueled by these caricatures. So we have these caricatures, uh, you know, cartoon images that culture gladly feeds us about God. That God is sort of this angry, frustrated, grumpy old white Anglo-Saxon Protestant in the sky that is just shaking his fist at anything that's filled with joy and goodness. That that's God's aim. God is this cosmic angry killjoy. That's out to just ruin your life. But really, what we see is that Jesus is deeply committed to your joy on his terms. The other thing we see is that Jesus used common, familiar part of his own uh, town in which he lived in, uh, what was commonly known as the Valley of Hinnom, to describe the experience of sorrow or suffering and death. So if you're familiar, there's times when Jesus would describe Gehenna. He'll use the word Gehenna. The word Gehenna literally is derived from a particular actual physical place called the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom has a very, very long lengthy history. If you're familiar with this, it was literally the trash keep outside the city so the people of israel imagine them living in this city that was a walled city they had to burn their trash somewhere they had to burn dead animals somewhere they had to sometimes even burn dead bodies in some cases somewhere this was the somewhere it was just outside of the city so it was a consistent constant billowing uh uh, with smoke and fire and stench and grossness, no one ever went, went for Sunday afternoon walks there. It was just—it was kind of like this forbidden place that everybody avoided. It was the Valley of Hinnom. It was always marked or viewed as a place of death, sorrow, and destruction. And so Jesus says, "Look, this is kind of like the natural state of the human soul." This is the way that humanity, as it currently is right now, apart from the life-regenerating goodness of God, consistently burning itself out. This is exactly what Gaghan discovered. Even though he was not a Christian, even though he was not in any way inclined to trust God, though he had some sort of religious background that he basically viewed, the way Rousseau did, as oppressive institutions, he came to the realization that human beings, anywhere you go, tainted. He wouldn't have described it as sin, because he wouldn't use those same terminology that the Bible does, but he would have recognized. And it left him in a state of absolute despair. Because there is no hope. Because if humanity is the ultimate hope, humanity operating in its optimal level is the ultimate hope, then if you can't find human beings operating in an optimal level with love and kindness and generosity towards one another then is there really hope for humanity? And he came to the realization that, no, there is not any really hope. But this is where the gospel, the good news of what God offers, comes in so clearly. The last thing I'll read a couple of passages uh, with regard to this is that Jesus was also very familiar with the ancient historic prophets. Now, the prophets oftentimes spoke a lot about various forms of judgment or brokenness or uh, various, uh, if you want to think of it this way, natural sequences of events or consequences that would befall uh, human beings that if they choose to go in a way that's in opposition to God, that will bring about consequences. Now, again, the most obvious one that you can even think of, so silly, but you can even just throw it out there. Like, let's say, for example, you were like, you know what? I really see myself and I identify as something that could fly. And you go out to the edge of a cliff, 60 foot cliff, and you're just, I'm gonna fly. You cannot fly. You're not wired to fly. Biologically, you're not capable of being able to fly. If you did that, you would find yourself face-to-face with the law of gravity, and you would lose that battle. No matter how you think no – ma- again, it's so obvious, so ridiculous, so silly. But the point of the matter is, is that there are ways in which society is wired or designed – by God, to function and to flourish well. Now, you can operate other laws that circumvent the law of gravity, like the law of aerodynamics. And if you can somehow figure out how to rig the system, you could fly. And yes, you can actually enter into a whole different law. And this seems to be the way that God has wired the world, that there are certain things that if you go against them, you will find yourself rubbing up against death and brokenness. And that's just the natural consequence. It's just what happens when you defy, or we defy, human or God's way in which He had ordered things to live. So, for example. Um, the prophets envision a time when God will fully move and sweep over all humanity and all of its brokenness and all of its death and all of its destruction and all of its defiance, and God would bring forth something brand new. So, for example, Daniel, if you also want the counterpart to this particular word, uh, Isaiah chapter 66 is the only time in the entire Bible that the particular word contempt, and I'll read it in its context in just a moment, actually appears. Listen to what Daniel 12 says. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake one day. Every scholar believes that this is a reference to what's called the final resurrection. They were dead in their graves, and then they arise. And he goes on to describe, uh, they, will, they who are asleep in the dust of the earth, they will awake. Some to everlasting life, and others to shame and contempt. And the words that are basically used there are shame, contempt. Now again, lastly in the book of John, uh, Jesus also almost echoes verbatim exactly this Uh, idea that Daniel centuries prior had basically put forth. Again, which tells you, Jesus isn't, you know, he's not just whipping stuff up out of nowhere. He's interacting with the very scriptures that he himself inherited. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was part of the Jewish story. Jesus was rearticulating the Jewish story with himself as being the very center of it. Jesus uh, would say this, the hour is coming when all that are in their graves shall hear his voice and they will come forth. And those that have done, good unto the resurrection of life and those that have done evil unto the resurrection of some of your translations might say damnation but again jesus is literally working with this old testament passage in the book of daniel and he's just simply articulating this is the natural course of humanity we don't like to talk about this stuff because it's not chipper and happy and fun but it's important for us to acknowledge the fact that as human beings made in the image of god invited by God to partnership with him, to loving partnership, relationship with him, though at the same time we have this natural bent to say, I'm going to follow my heart, not the Holy Spirit. And we go this direction, believing that it will promise us life and hope and goodness, will oftentimes over and over again actually only deliver brokenness and sorrow, anguish, contempt, shame, Again, we have a culture today that's filled with shame and guilt and regret. The common antidote to that is don't let anybody shame you. You're beautiful just as you are. You are perfect just as you are. Have you heard that? It's, it's, It's a lie. We are broken people. We're not perfect just as we are. There's parts of our lives that are just messed up. Now, again, I think we're just trying to assume good intentions for people. I think what people oftentimes saying is that, hey, the institutions that are condemning you and consigning you towards evil and wickedness and causing you to feel like a horrible human being in and of yourself, like, that's not entirely true. And this is where I would, would gently push back and say there is some truth to that. But at the same time, as human beings, apart from God, we have chosen a path. That actually runs away from God. And as a result of that, we've incurred upon ourselves brokenness, guilt, shame, regret. It's real. To somehow just turn that frown upside down and wish it away does not wish it away. So we've also created and crafted alternative ways to be able to do this. with this. We medicate. We self-medicate. Rose all day. We do what we can to somehow push The guilt, shame, regret cycles away. The more we indulge in that, the more it just kind of causes us to do something in our soul. Over time, what ends up happening, we end up creating this dehumanizing effect upon our souls. Where we're not even really even able to feel anymore. Where our conscience oftentimes can just simply be, the way New Testament describes it, as being seared as with a hot iron. It's possible to so consistently, so over and over repeatedly just pushed down upon our conscience that it stops functioning. It's like a GPS. It just stops working properly. That's not a good place to be. It's in the same way as in our physical bodies. If you if your pain mechanisms did not work. In other words, the part of your bodily system no longer feels pain that some of us would be like, that'd be awesome, but I didn't feel, feel pain anymore. It's, it's only awesome until you like break your leg or your arm and it's like dangling there. Like what's wrong with your arm? Like oh my gosh, it's like backwards. It doesn't make sense. I didn't feel it. Like that's the problem. Like we should feel stuff. Uh, Pain can actually be a means or precipitator towards health and wholeness and goodness if we allow pain to lead us to the proper places where we can become made whole. So this is the big idea that Jesus seems to be addressing. One scholar put it this way, that hell is a state of those who freely and definitively separate themselves from God, the source of all life and joy. Now again, like I said before, there's a lot of bad press, a lot of false news, a lot of fake news, a lot of propaganda that has gone out there and caricaturing the idea of what hell or brokenness is, as, this, as one author described it as, this underground torture chamber where God has this eternal whip and will forever, eternally be torturing human beings. That's propaganda. That, the scripture does not teach that. That's false. Hell is this natural state that human beings, apart from a God who loves us and intervenes and puts to stop all of those forces that are destroying and ruining our souls, and That are causing our broken GPS to desire and long for things that take us far away from God. And then God restores and renews us and brings us back to a place of wholeness. This is what God's good gift is all about. So that eternal life and joy are really ultimately contrasted with sorrow and death. I want to move on to the very next thing as we wrap this up. That eternal life and joy ultimately are the gift of God to be received. So God cares about all human beings. God cares about the state that human beings live in in terms of dealing consistently and constantly with these cycles of suffering, brokenness, pain, death. God cares about these things, and he does something about it by coming into this world and stopping it in its track. tracks. God's aim was to, to, to bring to death death itself. In other words, to kill death, to remove death, and all the consequences that bring about death which is sin and rebellion and turning away from God in that sense that constantly keeps feeding this narrative in our soul. It says, follow your heart, follow your heart. You know what's best. You are right to yourself. You are a law to yourself. At some point, that path leads us down to darkness. And when we begin to realize that, then we find ourselves in a place of realizing that our guilt, shame, regret cycles are actually linked to us following this false narrative. And now we can break free from that. In other words, truly be free. The real freedom that Rousseau envisioned is found by coming back to the one who created us and who truly loves us and who has an intention for us that's far beyond what we can ever even imagine or envision. He truly has a design for our lives that as we step into it, we begin to discover that both life, eternal life, and joy are available. So Paul succinctly puts it this way. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. I'll just read it. Listen to what he says. He's kind of summarizing all of human history. Just listen. So he kind of essentially goes all the way back to the very beginning. And he says, by Adam's, or by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. And I added this little phrase, bringing shame, contempt, and death by one man. So that's what Adam experienced. If you follow the life of Adam, you look at the story of Adam, you begin to realize that Adam experienced, no doubt, shame, contempt, and death. Was it God who is like throwing these on him like lightning bolts, like Zeus? No, these were just the natural consequences of what happened. Adam, you followed a voice that was not the voice of God, but it was the voice of the serpent. It promised you much, but had nothing to ultimately deliver. And as a result of that, you found yourself engaging and progering with death. It says, so by Jesus' obedience, many were made righteous. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also more reigned through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Paul's whole point is that eternal life, this gift that God gives, it's not something you merit. You don't earn it. You don't work hard to get it. You don't buy it from God. It doesn't matter how much money you have or how much claim you have to whatever, how influential you are, how many followers you have on Insta. None of this matters to God. God looks at broken people that have come face-to-face with their own humanity and brokenness and guilt and shame and realize, I don't know where else to turn. And it's in that context God says, I have life to give to you. All Adam gave you was what you're experiencing now. That was the wage of Adam. You're a son of Adam. You need to become a son of God. And you can't do that on your own. You cannot birth yourself, just like Jesus said in John chapter 3, the beginning part of that chapter was dealing with Nicodemus. You cannot make yourself, you cannot wish yourself back into your mother's womb and come back to life, but you can, by God's grace, be made brand new, made alive. In other words, salvation and thus joy are a gift from God. I would argue the greatest gift of Christmas. God comes into this world. It's one of the reasons I believe that at the time of... Jesus' entry into this world. It says that there is this declaration, glory to God in the highest and peace and goodwill to all mankind. This idea of joy, just exuberant joy over this dank, nasty, dingy, you know, manger. But in the midst of those circumstances, there was a sense of joy has come because eternal life has finally arrived. God has finally come in to do something with the brokenness that's pervasive in our culture. And we all know it. We all experience it. Whether you're a Christian or a straight-up atheist, we all come face-to-face with its contours. And yet God continually steps in over and over again and says, I've provided an alternative way that ultimately brings forth life. So the last thing for us to consider and to reckon with is have we received that gift of God? How do you know if you've received it? Because you're always joyful? No. No. The Christian life is oftentimes one, as I mentioned in the video, or as I mentioned in the video, that there will be moments of joy, and there will be moments where life just is filled with suffering. But even in the midst of that suffering, there's a sense of, God, you're still in control. God, you still love me. God, you are still for me. Life is hard. There are things that are tough. There is sin all around me. There are sins that have been done against me. Pains in which I'm working through, pains in which I've caused and inflicted upon other people that I care about, and I'm still living very much so in the midst of a very, very soiled world. And yet, in the midst of that, life has come, and therefore, joy is available. Have you received it? Let's all stand. I want to invite you into a practice, so if you want, you want to just close your eyes, and uh, I want to wrap it up with. Uh, inviting you to think about and to consider what are those areas in your life right now that joy is needed, a life of God is is needed. In other words, in its place right now, you may be dealing with various forms of death. Um, and how do you know if you're dealing with various forms of death or joylessness? Because in its place are these continual cycles of guilt. You feel guilty. Shame. You feel bad or things that you've done, things that have been done to you, and regret. Like, man, I really wish I would have done something different. And I can't let go of what I failed to do. That's something that Jesus says, I want to set you free from. And in its place, I want to breathe life and joy. So, Father, right now, as we come to you, as we cast before you just our need, uh, we invite you, Holy Spirit, in this place, by your presence, to flood, flood our hearts, all those areas that are filled with darkness, pain, sorrows, guilt, shame, regret, defilement, all of those areas, God, in their place, bring forth newness of life and joy that you alone can bring. We look to you, Jesus, as the author of all of this, even in the midst of a broken world, We trust you as the one that has come to deliver
1: and bring life. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.